0: This episode of the Artsy Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Artists, photographers, and designers of all kinds have used Squarespace to showcase their works, and you can do it too. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch your site and show your work to the world, use the offer code artsy to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code artsy, A-R-T-S-Y. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. Quick note before we go any further, this week's episode contains some explicit language. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by senior editor Tess Thackera. Hello. Hey, Tess. So it's just you and me today. We're going to be talking about a pioneering feminist art program in the United States uh, created by artist Judy Chicago in the early 1970s. This radical class created a vibrant space for women to explore what it meant to be women, what it meant to be women artists, and how all of this happened under the patriarchy. Eventually, the class kind of resulted in this uh, seminal 1972 genre-bending collaborative artwork called Woman House, which we'll talk about. But Tess, before we get into the program, before we get into Woman House, let's start with Judy Chicago. What was she doing uh, around the time that she began this this program out in California.
1: Yeah, so Judy Chicago in 1970 arrives at Fresno State University to take up a teaching position. Um, and at this point, she was four years out from making her famous The Dinner Party work, um, her really iconic feminist piece that most people probably know her from. And around this time, she was making her atmosphere's performances, um, in which she was releasing sort of clouds of diaphanous smoke and mist into the environment in order to feminize the atmosphere. That's how she described it. And she had come up in the male-dominated West Coast art worlds, in which, you know, minimalists and, and land artists were carving giant, holes into the landscape, chopping down trees, doing things like this. And she found this to be a very kind of aggressive, masculine approach to art making. And so she was responding by feminizing the atmosphere with this very soft um, approach to kind of impacting the environment. Um, So that's what she was doing at the time. And she arrived at the school that year with the intention of creating a space in which female artists could really flourish.
0: So how did she go about doing that?
1: So she meets um, another artist named Faith Wilding, who at the time was teaching a class called The Second Sex um, with Suzanne Lacy at Fresno State. And Lacy and Wilding were sort of involved in consciousness raising um, among women at the university. And Chicago invites Wilding to set up this new feminist art class with her. And what emerges is the first ever feminist art program in which they took the class completely off campus. And it was a kind of full commitment, you know, full time, all female class that existed in this space off campus. There were 15 students in the class and they were extremely involved in every aspect of creating the class, um, everything from finding the space itself, liaising with the real estate agent. You know, they were knocking down walls, putting up sheetrock. So it was this really sort of radical exercise in self-determination to even create a space where they could cultivate a female culture that was completely removed from the male-dominated institution of Fresno State.
0: So can you give us a sense for what... Uh, happened in this program what these classes looked like on a day-to-day kind of level
1: yeah so they had regular rap what they call rap sessions where they were sharing essentially their experiences of growing up in a patriarchy and being women in the 1970s so they were sharing painful experiences frustrations aspirations and deriving strength from one another about those shared experiences it was really sort of like a group therapy session and the themes that emerged would then become the subject matter for their art. I can, I can imagine that being
0: quite intense and actually, you know, very, very difficult.
1: I think it was. I mean, some of the students have definitely recounted feeling, I don't know if, if traumatized is quite the right word, but finding it very challenging and difficult to share experiences they weren't used to talking about. Some of them felt quite challenged by Judy Chicago, maybe even a little bit pressured um, to talk about some of these things. But then, you know, I think (laughs) the nature of of what they were talking about then led into work that was extremely pioneering and radical, often quite violent imagery, very visceral. You know, there were a lot of performance pieces, one in which... um, Faith Wilding produced this installation called Sacrifice where she created a replica of her body and she went and transported animal entrails and animal blood from a local slaughterhouse to their space, filled this body with it, um, you know, and lit candles around it and it was supposed to be sort of a symbol of female sacrifice also alluding to Christian imagery, she was sort of dealing with uh, the Christian tradition of female sacrifice. You know, they did a lot of research into ancient female deities. Um, and so they liked looking back to other examples, traditions of, of in which women were empowered um, and not sort of submissive and, and sacrificial.
0: Was this work put on public display or was it mostly kept within the confines of the class?
1: It ranged. Um, They did do some performances outside of their space. For instance, um, a few of them created this troupe called the Kunt Cheerleaders, um, and they would come up with these sort of satirical mocking chants about gender dynamics, the female experience, and they went to Fresno Airport and were kind of dancing around outside the airport <laughs> doing this cheerleading performance. But some of the other performances just took place within the space. It was sort of a workshop space for them to to be both the performers and the audience.
0: Yeah, and I always think it's interesting uh, to, to kind of bring in the broader political context when talking about something like this, because you're in California, which today probably people associate with being extremely progressive and liberal and, and open. But you have to remember at this time, you know, R- Richard Nixon is the president. He used to be the governor of California. The current governor of California is Ronald Reagan. So, yeah, I can imagine like a huge culture shock. Also, those cheerleaders that, that you mentioned, uh, Tess, remind me of how, you know, at this time, political campaigns often had like cheerleaders. You know, Nixon had his own <laughs> squad of, of cheerleaders um, who, who would welcome him at airports. So, so it is it is interesting to sort of think about the broader context. I know we often situate them within like a dialogue of of, of a male dominated art history, but you know, they're living in a time of extreme, both kind of hippies, but, Powerful conservative government
1: definitely Um, and they also had that on mind for sure because Faith Wilding in particular came up in a world of political activism student activism and they were really influenced by the methods and styles of activism that were taking place around them and so you know they they definitely had that on mind The imagery they were working with um, was incredibly radical. They produced a lot of what they call cunt art, so artwork that was representing female genitalia, the vagina, as sort of a stand-in for female desire and sexual agency. Uh, Actually, I wanted to read this quote, because I thought it was so great, from Faith Wilding when she talks about this. She says... We vied with each other to come up with images of female sexual organs by making paintings, drawings, and constructions of bleeding slits, holes, and gashes, boxes, caves, or exquisite Volvo jewel pillows. Making cunt art was exciting, subversive, and fun because cunt signified an awakened consciousness about our bodies and our sexual selves. Some of the works
0: uh, that you've spoken about kind of allude to this, but I'm curious to the extent to which, you know, a conceptual challenging of a male-dominated artistic practice and artistic spaces resulted in artwork that deviated formally from Mm. traditional male mediums.
1: Yeah, so they were very deliberately working in mediums that were free from the cultural baggage um, of having, you know, been... Sort of the ground that men planted their stake in for centuries and centuries, like painting and sculpture. Um, so they were working a lot in performance, installation, photography. They were extremely influential in pioneering collaborative modes of working. So a lot of the work they were creating was, you know, as a, as a sort of collective. And it was extremely conceptual. So they would start with an idea that would emerge often from these sessions they had together. And that would become the basis for the artwork, rather than the artworks coming, you know, out of formal concerns within a particular medium. And you know, there were also certain examples of artworks made that were just so prescient. For example, a student called Dori Atlantis did a series of photographs of other students acting out female archetypes, sort of you know culturally determined roles that women played in society. And this was almost a decade before Cindy Sherman I mean at least eight years or something before Cindy Sherman was making her film stills so even
0: everything we're talking about unfolded over one year at Fresno so an incredible amount of creative activity uh in in just the year the year after Judy Chicago moves the program to CalArts what was the reception like there
1: Yeah, so she moves it to CalArts in 1971, and it only lasts at CalArts for a year or so before she moves it off campus. And I think, you know, throughout, Judy Chicago faced a lot of difficulty among these male heavy departments um, in the, the universities who you know, were probably a bit baffled and sort of not particularly embracing of her practices. She ultimately moves it off CalArts and it becomes the feminist workshop and then that sort of morphs into women's building in LA. Um, but before she leaves CalArts, the program there pioneers Woman House.
0: And Woman House is the work that I mentioned at the top of the show.
1: Yes, it's super famous piece um, in which Judy Chicago and her students took over a mansion in Hollywood and they turned every room of this house into a feminist installation. So Judy Chicago takes over the bathroom, turns it into the menstruation bathroom where there are bloody tampons lying around. Another artist puts boobs all over the kitchen. Faith Wilding creates this sort of crocheted giant hanging womb-like structure. There's a famous image probably some of our listeners have seen before of a mannequin embedded within the shelves of a closet. So it's, you know, a not so subtle metaphor for the female body completely constricted and contained um, within a closet.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you have a lot of work uh, dealing with domesticity, which is traditionally You know, a subject that's not given a lot of attention by male artists or seen as, you know, labor by art historians who are are looking for that, tracing that in art. And it's interesting because you can find uh, the original catalog essay on the Internet. And there's this great section and the essay is written by Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro, who she's working with at this time, another feminist pioneer. And the essay contains this great description of how all of the 23 women are building women house like basically Mm. from scratch um doing all of this labor and the neighbors you know just kind of talking about that culture shock the neighbors are totally aghast at this (laughs) don't know what to do they actually think the people building the house are men with long hair and they're at first outraged that the men have long hair only to be informed they're actually women which like sends them even further into like a tizzy. Um, and, and they they ask, according to this essay, if they're women, why aren't they wearing brasiers? So it's so it's it's always good to remember exactly how, you know, the, the neighbors stand in for, for how shocking this was to, to a lot of people who have a certain conception of what art looks like and who practices art and what those people look like.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think how these would have been received at the time. You know, also important to mention that they were extremely fleeting. I mean, this was only around for a very short period of time before it disappeared again.
0: So thinking a little bit about the legacy of this program and the legacy of Woman House, uh, looking back from our vantage in 2018, where a lot of the issues that are raised by the work and the class continue to be uh, relevant, continue to be parsed. Artists continue to face a predominantly male art historical canon. What do you think the legacy is of these endeavors?
1: Well, first of all, I would just say that I think, you know, looking back at Woman House now and the first feminist art program, these moments really resonate with our current moment, um, the idea of women coming together to share their experience and find strength and reinforcement in that. But I think... You know, Woman House and the Feminist Art Programme will be remembered, are remembered, for having really pioneered these new technologies, performance and collaborative modes of working, conceptual work. That's not to say these didn't exist in other forms beforehand, but they really pushed them further um, and did new things with them um, and sort of elevated them. But, you know, it's also important to remember that there were criticisms of, um, of the program, including that it really represented a white feminist viewpoint. The students were primarily almost overwhelmingly white. I think there was one student who was half Brazilian. There was an assumption that everyone was coming from a heteronormative orientation, no other sexual orientations to speak of. You know, and Judy Chicago would go on to be criticized for this also in the dinner party, which overwhelmingly represents a white feminist perspective, too. Um, so it's important to sort of bake in those criticisms in how we remember these pieces.
0: All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you, Tess, so much for walking us through that history. So we'll be back with white wine in one second. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that allows artists, photographers, and designers to create websites showcasing their work. One of them is Miro Chun, who's based in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a full-time ceramicist. I have a small practice called Miro Made This. I talked to Miro about her series of objects titled Perfectly Imperfect, in which she finds the singular beauty in the flaws that can arise when making handcrafted ceramics. So there are all these pieces that something happens and whether it's something that's just inherent in the material qualities or just something about the process or something you know that I did when I was tired or in a rush or something you know these things happened and um, there's this attachment you feel to any of these things that you make and when you've gotten that far in the process you just don't really want to throw away all the work that you'd invested into it so I would keep them around as a reminder you know this kind of stuff happens just move on and it's just a part of the process. It's funny because these pieces that something's gone awry with, I would have them on a shelf in my studio, and whenever somebody would come by, you know, they would always pick that up, you know, and ask. They're like, oh, what's that? You know, how did you do that? And I'd have to explain, well, no, actually, it's a mistake. You can see more of Miro's work on her website, MiroMadeThis.com, which was designed using Squarespace. To save 10% off your first purchase of a Squarespace website or domain, use the offer code ARTSY. That's A-R-T-S-Y. So, Tess, where in the art world are you going to be drinking white wine this week?
1: Well, since we're on the topic of radical feminists, I thought I would recommend um, Carolee Schneemann's exhibition at MoMA PS1. She is perhaps best known almost certainly best known for her performance, Meat Joy, um, in which a bu- essentially a bunch of naked people ride around, um, <laughs> paint one another, and um, it's a very visceral body art piece. But I also want to give a shout out to the piece in which she makes out with her cats. Um, she has a very intimate relationship with her cats, particularly one named Kitsch, uh, who I think is probably no longer <laughs> since Kitsch featured heavily in works made you know, back in the 70s, 80s but it's just a really great show and I, I like cats and I, I'm more for close relationships with your pets.
0: When I was at Penn, Carolee Schneeman came and put on a one night performance uh, at, a, at a nearby kind of art space near, near campus and the premise was it was a cat party. So she was walking <laughs> around with these cat ears on and brought her cat and everyone could bring their cat to this party and like put it in a cage it was oh my God. disgusting i mean it was truly it smelled whew, horrible um i love cats i have i have two cats but uh it, it did smell really bad in that that seems space.
1: like vaguely abusive to be honest yeah i don't know what i thought of it
0: um <laughs> uh i was an undergrad so i was like art is kooky <laughs> All right. So fans of the show will know my white wine last week was that I was going to Washington, D.C. to see the National Gallery of Art, which I ended up doing. I didn't really understand or realize how dramatic the architecture would be. The space itself is is incredible. There are these uh, amazing sort of rotundas with columns and fountains. I mean, it, it, it sort of feels like one of those things that re- reminds you that people used to think museums were like these hollowed spaces, like quasi-religious. Mm. And it definitely definitely gets that i also saw a ton of people painting works of art like with per- pitch perfect accuracy like someone was camped out in front of a vermeer just cool. painting it it was amazing like people had gathered around her um and i also saw the only da vinci that's still in the americas but gotta say underwhelmed by that but but otherwise you know check check it out <laughs> great great museum if you happen to be in dc okay so i think we'll leave it there for today thanks so much tess Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, podcast at artsy.net. See you next time. Our producer this week, as always, Associate Editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Brooke for free. Other music is by Jazar.